I think the Fed is really looking for others to step up, take more responsibility for the economic recovery, and for good reason. They're running out of ammo. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Friday, August 26th. That was economist Richard DeKaiser, you heard at the top, talking on Bloomberg TV about Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke's speech today. As we record this, the rebels in Libya, after months of fighting, seem to be in the final stages of unseating Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Once they do, one of the biggest problems they will face is something you might not think of as a problem, the massive amount of wealth they as a country possess in oil. This is actually such a problem, it has a name, the oil curse. Almost all countries that find oil suffer as a result of it. But there is one notable exception, and today we will hear about that country and the extremely unlikely and fascinating story of how it came to avoid the oil curse. But first, a special guest Planet Money indicator from Robert Smith. Today's Planet Money indicator is one. Oh, which is the loneliest number, of course. But 1% is also the rate at which the economy grew from April to June. Government announced that just today. That really is an awe. <laughs> well, you know, the amazing thing about the 1% growth is, is not the number, but the fact that this is one of those downward revisions that we get. So last month, the government told us that the second quarter, the GDP, the sum of all the goods and services in the economy, grew at 1.3%. And now this month, they come out and said, yeah, we got that wrong. It was just 1%. And they've been doing this a lot recently, you may have noticed. So last month, they told us that the recession was far deeper than we thought it was, that the recovery was slower than we thought it was. The, the first few months of the year were downgraded to 0.4% growth, which was a brutal, brutal revision. And then we have today's 1% growth, which is better than nothing, but um, still just barely creeping along the economy. It is amazing, these GDP numbers. We talk about them all the time. And yet the first numbers that come out are not that accurate. These revisions end up being quite large sometimes. Yeah, and it's not even the first month. The second month when they revise it often turns out wrong too, the 1% I just told you. It's, it basically takes them a year before they get it right. And it's interesting because the New York Times crunched some numbers and they found out that on average, if you look back over 30 years, say, these growth estimates were off by 1.3 percentage points. Now, remember, GDP is... Two, that's like three, a four percent. It's like a fifty percent error or something. Right? Yeah, and it's a little bit crazy, but you got to realize there's this pressure in the markets to know immediately what is happening to the economy right now, right now. And on the flip side, when they do these GDP calculations, they're based on a lot of estimates, a lot of guesstimates. So they don't know whether, for instance, David, you have cable television this month. But they look at the last month and the month before that, and they figure, oh, so many people had cable TV. These many people probably have cable TV this month. And they don't know if a bunch of people canceled it or started to watch Hulu or something like that. So they'll check back in and they'll say, uh, you know, I guess David's not watching as much as we thought he was anymore. So, so I guess today's indicator should not be 1%. It should be 1%-ish. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks. Okay, on to the show and the oil curse. You might think that having an abundant natural resource like oil would be good for a country, but mostly you'd be wrong. It corrupts, it distorts the economy. For most countries, it's a curse. And we talked to Martin Sandbu. He's an editorial writer at the Financial Times about this. What in general is the track record for dealing with the resource curse? It's, it's awful. It's really very, very bad. Most countries are probably would probably have been better off without oil than they are with oil. Is it? Are we talking about like 
the number of countries, is it like single digits that we're talking about who've managed to do it well? I think you can count them on one hand. At least if it's oil, you can count them on one hand. The country that would be first on almost anyone's list of countries that somehow managed to avoid the oil curse would be Norway. And the story of how Norway avoided the oil curse is a fascinating tale. It's the tale we're going to be bringing you today. We learned of this story from an article Martin Sandbu wrote. Martin Sandbu is the guy you just heard from. He's from Norway. And his article focused on one guy, one unusual man, who was instrumental in helping Norway get it right, where so many countries get it wrong. My name is uh, Farouk Al-Qasim. Qasim is not a, a Norwegian name, right? I know it is. Farouk Al-Qasim is Iraqi, and for over a decade, he worked in Iraq for an oil company. He was trained as a geologist. Farouk's wife was Norwegian, and in the 1960s, they decided to move to Norway. Their son had cerebral palsy and needed medical care. Job-wise, Norway seemed at the time like the worst place in the world for an oil guy. You see, the Norwegian geological survey had already said that there is no hope in heaven of ever (laughs) finding oil or gas. So Farouk figured if he was going to get an oil job, it would come with a very long commute. If I am lucky, I could get a job in Europe somewhere or even even in, in North Africa or the Middle East. And then I could commute to Norway. If the worst comes to the worst, I may be able to drive a taxi <laughs> in Norway. That's what I was thinking. So Farouk flew to Norway. He had to catch a train, but he had six hours to kill before the train left. And those six hours turned out to be very fateful for Farouk and for Norway. Instead of waiting around in the train station, Farouk decided, I'll spend my time productively. I looked into the telephone directory and decided that the Ministry of Industry is the ministry to deal with oil, if there, is, if there were oil at all in the country. So I went there and... So you just took a cab from... Uh, not even a cab. I walked. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oslo is not all that big. Farouk knew that there were some companies looking for oil in Norway, despite what the Norwegian Geological Service had said. And he was hoping to get a list from the ministry of these companies. He assumed they'd just write some names down on a piece of paper and send them back to the train station. But instead, they sit him down and they start asking him all these questions. They made me sit for an hour, an hour and a half, and tell them about where I come from and what I've been doing and what uh, what kind of education. I thought it was a very, very... I thought it was just social curiosity. But what Fruk didn't know at the time, Norway isn't just an overly friendly society. It turns out that group of people in that office had been waiting for a guy like him to walk in the door for a while. See, even though Norway's geologists had said there wasn't oil, there were still oil companies exploring. And these oil companies were sending the results of their exploration to the government. Now, Norway is a small country, and there aren't a lot of people who can make sense of that data the oil companies were sending. And so then this Iraqi guy walks in and says, uh, I'm here. Is anyone still looking for oil? So what do they do? They hired him. And his first job, first job they gave him was they asked him to look over the geological results from the oil companies that had been doing test drillings. The train in Norway could not be more different, right? Farouk has gone from the deserts of Iraq to almost the Arctic Circle. The oceans are violent and freezing cold. But, you know, geology is geology. And to him, looking at the drilling reports, they look surprisingly promising. The oil companies had found oil. Not a lot, but there was definitely something there under the ocean floor. Remember, the, the, the country was saying, there's no way there's oil out there. Uh-huh. And here I am looking at data that says, my God, they've already found it four times over. Admittedly, in, in not yet 
commercial size. And by the way, you know, most oil companies, they, they, when they go to a new area, they are not really interested in what I call the, um, the foxes and the rabbits uh, and the mice. They are interested in elephants. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they had a couple of foxes and mice that was in the data, but, but, they were, but you, it, w- it wasn't clear there was an elephant there. They were looking for elephants, uh-huh. but uh, if you are a good geologist, you should appreciate very quickly that it's too early. The elephants will be there. It's just a question of uh, giving them a little bit of time to learn uh, how to find elephants. And they will be shooting not only one, but maybe 20 elephants. So Farouk's job is to take all this data and write a report. And what he says in this report is two things, basically. One I know your official geological survey said there's no oil. Turns out that's not true. And two, in fact, there's probably a lot. And you, Norway, have to get ready so you don't suffer from the oil curse. Norway has no time to waste preparing themselves for the oil era. And of course, you know, they looked at the report and they said, oh, do you really say that? Oh, my God. Mm. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, all the warnings, uh, I, I was a little bit um, desperate in trying to find, well, how do, I, how do I go about persuading them that they really must start preparing themselves? Farouk's job of persuading them got a lot easier pretty quickly because shortly after he wrote that report, in 1969, people discovered the elephant the Ecofisk oil field, a massive reservoir which even today, just this one field, produces almost 300,000 barrels of oil a day. So clearly, Norway had a situation. They had a lot of oil, and they had this guy from Iraq saying, you have to be very, very careful how you handle it. So let's just pause here and lay out why finding what is essentially a pot of gold is considered by economists to be a curse. The first reason is just that it corrupts. It's human nature. When something very valuable is discovered, fights tend to break out over it. A lot of times you get dictators who keep all the money for themselves and use it to keep themselves in power. But there is a second problem with discovering massive amounts of oil, and it's less human nature, more mathematics. It's sometimes called Dutch disease after what happened in the Netherlands when they found a bunch of natural gas. And it goes like this. All of a sudden, you have this commodity which the whole world wants to buy from you. Money floods into your economy which makes your currency more valuable. After all, if someone wants to buy oil from Norway, they have to pay for it in the Norwegian currency, the krona. Before Ecofisk, not much of the world cared about having a lot of Norwegian krona, but now everyone wants it. And as we've talked about before on this podcast, this was actually the point of that Switzerland podcast we just did. When your currency gets more valuable, that's actually a tough thing for a lot of local industries. I mean, take, for example, the Norwegian fishing industry, right? All of a sudden now, Norway's cod is going to be way more expensive than cod from other countries that haven't discovered oil. And so when you discover oil, what can happen is that other sectors of your economy shrink or even die. And that was the fate that awaited Norway. Corruption, collapsing industries, a possible descent into tyranny. So they asked Farouk, what do you think we should do? And he and a colleague sat down to write their recommendations, recommendations for how Norway should deal with its extremely dangerous newfound wealth. They had one week to do it. Farouk and his colleague needed a quiet place to think, so they set up for a cabin in the woods that his colleague had. We have food, we have beds, we have everything, fishing rods, and uh, you know, we could could work as hard as we like, and, and then when we are tired, we could relax. And actually, we, instead of using the whole week, we did it in... Four and a half days. 
It was a first draft of a white paper, a white paper that got passed up to various officials in the Norwegian government, reviewed, and eventually incorporated into a finance ministry plan that ended up saving Norway from the resource curse. Now, Farouk wants to make it clear he was one of many people that contributed to this plan. But what emerged was pretty great. The plan set up a powerful independent regulator that made sure all the companies in Norway played by the same rules, that there weren't any sweetheart deals, that they paid their fair share in taxes to the Norwegian government. But that still left the Dutch disease problem. Selling all that oil would flood the country with money and drive up the value of the currency. So the solution? Let's not make so much money. Let's not drill everything at once. So what they advocated that, that we should be very restrictive in how many license blocks we allocate per year. And as a result of that, throughout the 70s, no more than three, four blocks were allocated every year. That shows amazing self-restraint. We're only, we have all this oil on the ground, but we're only going to tap a bit every year. It is a fantastic self-restraint. The, the whole nation didn't even question this. Now, when, when this white paper of 1974 came out, it was received with skepticism by the industry, who wanted Norway to go full speed ahead. But at the end of the day, when the debate settled, the opinion of the politicians was very clear. We should go slowly. So, Dave... Let's just pause here to marvel at what the Norwegians did here. They essentially had this gigantic pile of money buried beneath the ground, and they said, you know what? We're not going to dig it all up at once. In fact, we're going to dig it up really, really slowly, just a little bit a year for decades. And in an additional amazing act of self-restraint, the Norwegians decided the money we do dig up, the citizens of Norway, initially, they will not see any of it. We're not going to spend it on schools or roads or sports stadiums. In the beginning, instead, what they did with it they reinvested almost all the money back into developing the oil industry, into drilling new wells, doing new explorations, developing new technologies. Remember, Norway's oil was really hard to get. It's far beneath the ocean floor in cold, stormy seas with these crazy cross currents. The technology to get it out of the ground barely existed at the time the discovery was made. So there was a lot of R&D to invest in to actually get it. And even later in the 1990s, when a lot of those problems had been solved, the government still did not spend the money it got from oil and instead put it into a fund. Here's Martin Sandbu, the Norwegian journalist we heard from earlier. It's been saved in, a, in an oil fund, a savings fund, and the government only gets the interest on the financial wealth that's in that fund. Your country basically has a huge trust fund, a huge endowment. A huge trust fund. Uh, the trust <laughs> fund is, I haven't checked the latest numbers, but it's on the order of $500 billion now, which amounts to $100,000 per Norwegian citizen. It's pretty nice. It's quite nice. Does anybody in Norway say, you know what, I just want that money now. Can you just give me $100,000? Is that even a... Surprisingly few. I mean, you, have, <laughs> you have some people, uh, certainly on the sort of populist right side of the political spectrum, who, who say they don't... Some of them say more of this money should just go out in cash to the population or it should finance tax cuts. More often they say we should invest it at home in hospitals and roads and so on. Uh, but the consensus has really been very strong that this has to be managed carefully and we shouldn't try to spend more than the interest. You know, maybe it should be a bit more, maybe a bit less. Uh -huh. but, but the agreement that it should for now be kept for future generations is pretty strong. Well, that, that's what I call the Norwegian miracle. Again, Farouk Al-Qasim. The Norwegian miracle is that the parliament, all the parties in parliament, agreed on a policy. And we call it the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Uh, and it, it's in, in 10 points. They agreed on a policy and they 
agreed among themselves that they will never use oil policy as a subject during elections. And that's true? You don't see political ads where they talk about... Even today, even today. They don't avert Tashrat. Everything you're saying that was so crazy because it, it seems like the only way you can avoid the, the oil curse is to go against human nature in in sort of every single thing that you that you do. So for example, you have to tell the oil companies who are very, very powerful and have lots and lots of influence, you can't have what you want. Then you have to tell the taxpayers Hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to take the money that's coming from the oil, but we're actually not going to give it to you in terms of schools and and you know and and things right now and new roads. We're going to keep it and we're going to put it in a fund for saving and then we're going to reinvest it back into oil wells. And then you have to tell politicians who are always looking for the best hot button issue to get elected, the biggest thing that's happening right now, you're not allowed to talk about it. It's sort of in every case, do the thing, do the opposite to the thing you want to do. <laughs> well, yes, <clears throat> that's the problem. The problem is, you were right when you said that uh, uh, all countries point to Norway and say, well, uh, at least there is one country that has completely avoided the oil curse. Uh, the problem with that is, of course, uh, if you try to apply the same thing anywhere else, you will not succeed. Which, of course, brings us back to Libya. That is the sound you hear of Libyan rebels celebrating in Nisrata. Libya has, by some estimates, the largest oil reserves in Africa. And for many years, they were a classic example of the oil curse in action. A corrupt despot stealing oil money for himself, the economy in shambles, the citizens living in fear and poverty. Farouk is skeptical that Libya will be able to shake the oil curse. I mean, if you look at Norway... Norway had the good fortune of already being sort of wealthy and having very strong institutions when it discovered oil. That is not true in Libya. And Farouk has this experience of trying to help another country in the region that had a very similar situation to Libya, his homeland, Iraq. After Saddam Hussein was toppled, Farouk offered his expertise to the new Iraqi government. He knew the relevant ministers from his years in Iraq, so he wrote up an oil plan, drawing on all the lessons Norway had to offer, but didn't go very far. I give up. I gave up because they, they they couldn't decide how to enact a law. They're still quarreling about which law to uh, vote on. It's total chaos. What do you think of the prospects for Libya handling its oil well under a new government? A very, very, very tough challenge. I hope to God that they manage, but I think they have a tough challenge ahead. Uh, I don't want to be a pessimist, uh, but I'm too experienced to be uh, to be naively optimist. Martin Sanbu, the journalist you've been hearing from, who actually in a previous life was an academic specializing in the oil curse, he is slightly more optimistic. He says that compared to other countries, Libya has a couple things going for it. It actually does have a pretty well-functioning oil industry. That is, there are lots of Libyan engineers and geologists and technocrats who know how to get oil out of the ground and how to market it efficiently. Also, he says, Libya does save some of its oil money. It has a sovereign wealth fund. Sure, it's been horribly managed by Gaddafi, but it is there, ready to be put to the service of the citizens of Libya. And finally, Gaddafi will soon be gone. Libya does seem now to 
be a little bit of a clean slate, at least for for a short amount of time. The uh, If the regime really falls, which I hope it does, it leaves so few institutions behind because so much was really centered around Gaddafi and his person and his family. So they really have to build new institutions anyway, and that gives a chance of building them well. In all, Farouk and Martin had similar basic advice to Libya. Be transparent, try to set up strong institutions. And if that proves difficult, Farouk had one final piece of advice from Norway. The best advice you could give them is, for God's sake, don't go very quickly about it. And then you have time to think in terms of institutions, legislation, uh, transparency, uh, build up uh, defenses against the oil curse as you go along. Take it slowly. Make sure that you don't create a bonanza that drowns all common sense. The first time he moves, it's a hair that he touches. She asks, are you cursed? He says, I think that I'm cured. Then he talks of the Nile and the girls in bulrushes. We will link to Martin Sandbu's excellent article in the Financial Times on our blog, npr.org slash money. Also to a story about Libya's sovereign wealth fund and what's happened to all the oil money. As always, let us know what you think. Send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. Find us on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Alex Bloomberg. I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. In New York he is late in a glass-covered case. He pretends he is dead. People crowd round to see him, but each night she comes round. 